Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics, a podcast dedicated to exploring how things get places and the people who get them there. We'll talk with logistics and supply chain leaders about innovation, industry trends, and the future of the logistics business. Now, here's your host, Joe Lynch. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today's topic is top trends in supply chain technology for 2021 with my friend, Charlie Dahoney. Welcome, Charlie. Hey, Joe. Thanks for having me again. Thank you so much. I think this might be the very first video recording that I do for my podcast. That Squadcast, which is what I use, they have that technology. So, Charlie, this is a milestone for us. And uh, I think people are going to be shocked at how good looking we are. That's just my Yeah, I was going to say something else, but um, (laughs) I don't know how I got to be the guinea pig with this, but here we are. They announced it the other day, or on Tuesday, and I was like, all right, here we go. (laughs) So I sent emails to everyone I'm interviewing. It's a brand new world, but more importantly, I I want to talk about a, an article I saw a few weeks ago. It's called Top Trends in Supply Chain Technology for 2021. And Charlie wrote it. It was somebody shared it on LinkedIn. And I was like, "Ooh, this is good. I looked through it. And then uh, I sent a note to Charlie and said, hey, love the article. Would you mind coming on my podcast and talking about it? And he was kind enough to say yes. So here we are. So Charlie, please introduce yourself and your company. Yeah, so my name is Charlie Dehoney. I'm currently the president of Upwell Revenue Solutions, which is my freight tech investment and advisory business. Just as recently as last week, I stepped down as the president of Fitzmark, which was the company that acquired my business in uh, 2020. I was formerly the CEO of Manning's Truck Brokerage. Nice. So give us a little bit of your background. So I know you last time you were on my podcast, I learned that you grew up in California. You're a football player, played a little bit of college ball, which I'm always, always impressed with. And you're married and you got three kids and you moved to Omaha. But tell us something we don't know about you. Well, I'd say that really my main job is I'm a travel baseball dad. And I'm a sports fanatic. So my kids call me daddy coach. I was their head coach for every sport that they could ever play. And in fact, I sort of have a standing posture that if there's ever, you know, a group of kids out playing anything, I'll, you know, could go up against any dad and you can take your kids and I'll take, you know, some kids and we can drop some plays in the sand. And I think I can get my kids to outperform yours. Yeah, you know, it's when I was a kid, my dad was a great athlete. And so he would always come out and I grew up in Dearborn, Michigan, where we had to play sports. I think it was the law. So we played everything. And my dad would always come out and and start coaching. And at the time it was like, oh, dad, come on. And then my dad was the hockey coach. And I remember I was like, God, it was like, he hits so hard. (laughs) And I remember I was a goalie one year and I was like, remember he hit me with the puck. I was thinking, I'm your son, damn it. (laughs) But he didn't go light on us. But as I got older, I, I appreciate what he did for us. As a kid, you know, you're kind of always like, oh, come on, Dad, leave us alone. But he pushed us. And I think one of the things that I always loved about this, in retrospect, not at the time, my dad would always accuse us of all trying to look cool. <laughs> he said, stop being cool, start getting hot, start pushing. You know, I want to see grit here. And I love that. As a kid, you do want to look cool. You want to impress your friends with how effortlessly this is going, but that's not how the real world works. 
Yeah, I think uh, our dads must have been kindred spirits because <laughs> my dad was was heavily involved with us as kids and our sports. And um, I see the exact same sort of flaws in my sons as they uh, you know get more enthralled with professional athletes. My middle son is an extremely talented athlete, and in baseball he tries to do everything like Fernando Tatis Jr., including <laughs> throwing sidearm across the diamond. And in basketball he's continuously like you know imitating one of these NBA players or another. And I keep reminding him that you know slow is steady and steady is fast. You'll get there one day, but you got to keep going. Oh, I love that. I, by the way, I am interviewing a Navy SEAL later today, so I'm excited because that's what I was going to ask him. Just what you just said. What is Slow is steady, steady is fast. Right, right. Because that's one of the things they say. So, Charlie, tell us a little bit about your career prior to up to now. Yeah, so I started off going door to door selling overnight shipping for a company called Worldwide Express back in their infancy. Glamorous. Yeah, really glamorous. Uh, we're the product we had to go to market with was Airborne Express. I didn't know anything about overnight shipping, but we had done a case study in uh, in college in one of my business classes about how DHL should acquire Airborne Express. And right about the time I was joining in two thousand three, they did. Yeah, and uh, Amazon and eBay were just becoming household names. Worldwide Express had a phenomenal outside sales training program, and uh, I thought, you know, hey, this parcel shipping thing, it's probably going to continue to grow and get bigger without realizing that supply chain was going to quadruple. You know, inside of my career path. Of over the last 20 years, but was fortunate enough to work for some really fantastic entrepreneurs at Worldwide Express and was really supported by some folks that believed in me. And so I got some sweat equity and moved into management at a very young age. And so six months into the business, I was hiring people older than me and and running the office without a boss in the building. So I learned how to kind of like push myself and grind and push others and uh, had some fantastic success growing businesses and doing some mergers and acquisitions in the Worldwide Express system. And then in 2008, when the market turned down, I was able to, to sell my shares and move back to San Diego, where I was from. And then I started a freight brokerage company out of my house initially as an agent for Global Trans. And then I built the business up to a really solid, what I call like a lifestyle business. Also, at the same time, concurrently built in, and managed a small chain of pack and ship stores that was focused on the oversized and odd shape uh, shipping market. Built that into really a global freight forwarding company. Learned a lot about transportation through those two businesses. And then in 2012, I took my first ride in Uber and I it was instantly struck with uh, how much much this was going to change commercial logistics. So then I set out on a path to learn everything that I could about how to build, you know, tech-enabled logistics businesses. So got involved with early stage companies, uh, pick some winners like Cargomatic, Shiphawk, and then in 2016 I co-founded Airspace Technologies, which is a time-critical logistics platform. Congratulations to the team that just celebrated the Series C funding round last week. We raised 38 million dollars to continue the mission and go global. So I met those guys when they had uh, two really fantastic founders, a great-looking product, and zero business. And so I was uh, fortunate enough to be able to help them go to market, led some of the fundraising rounds, invested into the business, and ultimately got it from uh, an idea to a $100 million valuation company uh, with a great team inside of about 18 months. And then that's really when I started thinking, hey, startup stock is cool. But it may never turn into anything. I call startup stock monopoly money because until there's a liquidity event or somebody comes along and buys you out, you're just sitting on stock. So that's what really kind of forced me to start thinking about how can I create some liquidity for myself and my family, get back to buying and selling businesses. And then with the support of some really fantastic investors out of Southern California, we found Manning's Truck Brokerage in 2018, bought the business February 2019 and sold it for a great return in October of 2020. Nice. So you've kind of been there, done that, got the hat. And, uh, you know, I like that you've been an entrepreneur and an investor and an executive. You've got the view that a uh, few have. And it seems like you've also straddled from brokerage to small parcel and truckload. 
which is yeah, I think any area of like of logistics between my pack and ship stores, the startups I've worked in, consulting, you know, if there's a mode of transportation, I've either uh, booked it, packed it, shipped it, you know, or touched it in some way, shape, or form. So know enough to be deadly. I think about you know in, in all of these areas, and so it really just kind of fuels my passion to continue to like build friends, make relationships. And my standing posture is advice is free. So if you've got a question and you think I can answer it, like let's jump on a call and get to know one another and see where it goes. Right. I know I've uh, introduced you to a few of my friends who are in the startup mode and they really do appreciate your advice. And it seems like you already know half of those guys. But, you know, I think, you know, what's also telling to me, Charlie, is you obviously have a lot of hats you're wearing, a lot of jobs you've been doing, and you still find time to write these articles. And I see a lot of them in Freight Waves and I see this one was in Medium. And um, that's impressive to me because I know what a pain sometimes it can be to sit down and write. I've written a lot of articles myself. I like podcasting better, but it take some discipline to sit down and say, I'm going to write, especially when you got three little kids running around the house and dragging you off to practice. So very impressive. So again, the topic today and the article today we're going to talk about is top trends in supply chain technology for 2021. So Charlie, what's the first trend you want to talk about? Well, I think just in general, just each year, you know, I, I really enjoy getting to spend some time in December. I really tend to like not go into the office and get down in the weeds in December because I use it as a time to be, really reflect on my personal life, you know, accomplishments, my family, and then also think about in the business world, what do I want to accomplish next year? And so starting a few years ago, I would spend the time to reflect and think about the upcoming trends and really survey the landscape, mostly around the investments that had gone into these businesses across really all asset classes and figure out like, where is the next big bang going to come from. So what I saw this year was obviously what everybody else saw that COVID changed our life and we were never going to go back to doing business the old way. That's become abundantly clear, uh, nor should we. I mean, we've innovated in advance as an industry and I'm, I couldn't be more proud to be a part of this industry that kept the world moving when everything else shut down. So, Right. Yeah. And I've always said on this podcast a few times, the other essential workers don't become essential until the truckers get there. <laughs> yes, exactly. And so I think the first trend that I saw, it was, I noticed it right away in managing a truck brokerage business that had a number of, of enterprise Fortune 100 customers was that the implementation of marketplace software and technology to enhance the carrier base that big enterprises were already using, that happened immediately. So seeing people flock into marketplaces when, you know, in February, we had this crazy paradigm this year where in February, truckers were protesting on Capitol Hill and parking their trucks because rates were so low and they were, you know, accusing brokers of collusion and all of these nasty things. And then by the time the world started to reopen in May, the hockey stick of the rate scale kind of went up, up into the right. So, you know, we saw, you know, Freight Waves has educated us all on their tender rejection ratios. And uh, none of us right. knew what that was until they brought Sonar to market. And so when you start seeing tender rejections go way, way up, you know, those big shippers, they can't afford to have those hundred loads sitting on the dock. They're going to go away some way and they're going to pay right. for it. So the implementation of supply-based acquisitions software really just skyrocketed. So there was a couple that really stood out from my vantage point. We had a number of customers that have been asking me about Emerge and how would Emerge kind of work within the confines of working with their existing carrier base. And then we probably had during quarantine, six or eight customers move over to the Emerges, the Transplaces, the Banyans of the world. And I think that really changed their procurement process in the spot market. So when I think of, when you say marketplaces, I think of Convoy. Is that one of them? 
So look, like I have a, a broader view of digital freight marketplaces and digital freight brokers. Eventually, they're going to end up in the same place, right? What they're trying to do is disintermediate the broker and get the human out of the transaction. They're starting at it from different angles. So what Convoy is, is they're a licensed broker, right? They carry an MFC number as a broker, and they are arranging for the freight and the transportation. Emerge has a brokerage component of their business, but what they are is really called a managed marketplace. So shippers will go to Emerge, and they'll put their freight out into the marketplace and then their existing vendors can bid on that particular load. New vendors can bid on that particular load. And sometimes Emerge bids on that particular load and their brokerage division ends up moving that freight from A to B. Because the the core tenets of a marketplace is you have to have supply. And if you have supply, the demand will come. But if that demand sits in the marketplace and the supply doesn't pick it up, the demand goes away. So the engagement between these two marketplaces is really that balancing act that the marketplaces have to have an answer for, where the digital freight brokers, you know, if Convoy takes a load from Anheuser-Busch, as an example, and that load's not flying off the board, Convoys, you know, raise more money than God, so they'll just pay to make that load go away and they'll eat the margin. A true marketplace... There has to be a balancing, you know, and a meeting point on the price where it it works for the supply position and it also works for the demand customer. And so the broker as the intermediary, like a Convoy, an Uber Freight, a Cargomatic, a Transfix, those folks sort of have more muscle and leverage to make those loads go away. Whereas Neutral, as an example, Neutral has zero management layer. So they bring supply, they plug it into a broker's TMS. The broker's TMS can now view not only their historical carrier base, but then they can also view the neutral carrier base. And what that's doing is that's accelerating the broker's ability to find the right truck at the right moment for the right price and get that load off the board. Right. So explain one more time the difference you see between you know companies like Convoy and you mentioned it merge and you mentioned neutral. Explain again that difference. And I know it's nuanced. That's why I missed it. <laughs> no, it's great. And I could be more concise with it. So to put it as simply as I can, Convoy is a digital broker has that human element, the management layer in between the load and the truck. Yep. There's going to be now Convoy will tell you that, you know, they're leveraging all this technology and doing all these innovative things. And that allows their brokers to do more loads per hour, which, you know, increases their efficiency and their profitability. But a digital freight broker still has butts in the seat making pricing decisions and talking to carriers. A true marketplace, you know, which emerges a managed marketplace. So they have a little bit of that management layer in there, but a neutral, a freight friend, um, you know, a cargo base, there is just orders that come into the platform and sometimes they move, sometimes they don't, but no human's going to go in there and push and turn the screws and make that thing go away. Right. Well, I've had Convoy on the podcast a few times, and I'm always impressed with that they do have the person in the middle if needed. And I think, you know, the idea that there's some jobs that technology can do, any job technology can do, go ahead and do it. But there's certain times, to your point, that technology doesn't work and a load somehow doesn't get picked up. And they say, oh, we're not going to let that business go. And I like that approach. When I was in 3PL, every once in a while, I'd have a customer who would get a quote from somebody else. And I would say, I'll match and beat that quote. I wouldn't even have to look at what our rates were because I would eat it <laughs> rather than let mm-hmm. them do business with someone else. So I like that. So why are people moving to these digital freight brokers and all these digital freight marketplaces? Why are they moving to those? So I think there was a few reasons that we saw 
you know, number one, the industry has been thirsty for technology. And as the legacy transportation and supply chain management group ages out of the business or moves up the organization, it's creating this sort of, sort of like millennial and Gen Y workforce out there that, you know, we were raised on Amazon and we were raised on using Uber. And we want to make sure that we have the same digital experience inside of our workplace because nobody wants to come to work and look at the green screen anymore. So I think from the board level down, there's been a lot of pressure towards digitization. And what that's really created this influence of these companies that have started up. So the options were there. That's the number one most important thing. But when everybody had to start working from home in February, people were scrambling to find a new way to do business because we weren't sitting in the bullpen going, hey, Harry, what's the rate on this, right? We were like, we were all now, you know, working over Slack and Zoom and all these messaging apps and tools. So it just made sense to start to better manage the way that transactions were procured and that the way that transportation was arranged for. Right. So COVID's one of the reasons and that, that also, includes the contactless operations. That, right. That's part of it. Again, I've seen, and I know this wasn't in your article, but I'm sure you're aware of what, what Ship's done with the home delivery. They got 200,000 personal shoppers. That's owned by Target. I'm Correct. so impressed with that because I've had Ship deliver food to my house and I think they could have 2 million people. I mean, you think about how quickly that could grow. And I think it's going to be destabilizing to a lot of industries. And the reason I say that is if given the choice between delivering food to houses or going to work in a warehouse, yeah, I'll be driving around in my car to drop the food off, right? And the flexibility is there. It's, I can take classes. I can do stuff with my kids. Life is good. Yeah, and I think for the essential nature of those workers, like those people were our heroes when we were staying at home. And, you know, when that driver would get there, we'd pop open the garage and, you know, we'd all have our masks on and they'd set the stuff down and, you know, my wife and I'd go pick it up and put it away. But it kept us out of the stores. And, you know, I think a company like Target really separated themselves from their competition because they were ready and poised to service a new type of customer. And, I mean, I look at my wife now and I think like, hey, if you ever end up in the grocery store, that's your fault. You know, we pay the premium. <laughs> we don't care what it costs right. to get the stuff brought here. So just go for it. I signed up for Shipped in November, not because I was worried about COVID. I wasn't. I live in a sparsely populated area, but I go over to Meyer, which is like uh, Walmart, but nicer. And I went over to Meyer. And around Thanksgiving, the lines get really long and I just get impatient. Mm-hmm. So I just start delivering that food. And I was like, why am I ever going over there? I was thinking I go over there two days a week, just buy 30 bucks here, 40 bucks there. I was thinking, why am I ever going to the grocery store? Stupid. But I still go. Correct. Now, but now I go to Target every once in a while because I'm checking them out. They're doing some interesting things. So besides contactless operations, talk about cloud and talk about visibility because I know that was part of the stuff that you were looking at when you looked at these digital freight brokers and the marketplaces. Yeah, and I think really the underlying trends that fueled this advancement and this flocking to these digital freight marketplaces was people needed those contactless operations. Drivers weren't getting out of the trucks for a while, so we needed a cloud-based platform that would authenticate a lot of this information and validate that the driver actually did his job and, and dropped off the product. And then certainly, you know, people needed more collaboration tools. Because we all realize very quickly that, hey, if we're not in the same room, we need to use these web services to go out there and and be able to execute our business. And we're historically maybe pricing for transportation was procured through an email thread and everybody would kind of see the responses and you'd kind of like reply back. That wasn't as effective if you're not in the same room, you know, communicating and saying, hey, I've got this one, you've got that one. So I think by moving into these cloud-based platforms, that was really essential to help drive, you know, the production and the ability to continue to keep freight moving. And then 
then certainly like visibility. I'm not talking about tracking the truck on the map, which you and I were talking pre-show is like really not that impressive anymore. Really what it comes down to is visibility around the workload and how many orders do we have? Who's working on what? How are we going to kind of manage this end-to-end supply chain? And really the web-based platforms allowed people the collaborative ability to kind of track and manage those orders. Right. When we're talking, when we're prepping for this, one of the things that I mentioned is I'm a supply chain guy originally, you know, and so I'm, I worked in automotive. If you were to say to me back when I was still in automotive, oh, I can track that truck from the time it leaves this factory to the time it gets to this assembly plant. I'd be like, oh, that's that's good. Not particularly interesting. It's, you know, it travels quite a bit the same way. I think that what I would want is I want end-to-end visibility. I want it from order to cash. That is, and I think in a few years, we won't be saying visibility. It'll just be like air. It'll be like, yep. yeah, it surrounds us, but we're not yep. overly impressed with it till it goes away. <laughs> then no, we're yeah. very impressed with it. But yeah, um, we each other off the lights, right? Yeah, it's it's going to be end to end. And I think uh, right now, again, I think we I say this a few times on my podcast, there's a spectrum. Somebody says we have visibility, but what they're doing is making check calls. And then there's other people. And I'll use my friends over at Turbo, a good example. They are looking end to end visibility and using technology, not check calls. So um, that's that's coming. So we talked about the first trend, which was digital freight brokers, and also these marketplaces. And reasons, contactless operations, cloud-based, visibility. What is another one? What's another trend you talked about in the article? Well, I got pretty deep into international ocean freight data and visibility. And the main reason is, you know, I guess around that is the world has been flat for a long time, but it got very small very quick, you know, during 2020 when U.S.-based suppliers, as an example, got an influx in orders and people all of a sudden needed to start nearshoring or onshoring again because their Chinese factory partners were shut down. Right. And so... Hey, please touch on that flat world concept. Some people might not be aware of what you mean when you say the world's flat. They might think you're... Uh... <laughs> a flat earther. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm not a flat earther or an anti-vaxxer or anything like that. I'm a you know pretty down the fairway guy. But yeah, so I think you know the world is flat. That was a term that I used to hear a lot, like around the turn of the century in the 2000s, which was like, hey, you no longer have to sail around the world to do business with trade partners in different countries. You know, you can actually just call them up and they'll take your order. And it really expanded the reach of, of many American manufacturing businesses. And we saw you know the Rust Belt get rustier as as fact factories continue to shut down and more and more of that activity and volume went overseas, not just to China, but, you know, Latin America and Mexico and other places in the world have really thrived and grown as the U.S. has continued to lean into our core competency, which is really deal making and building relationships and finance. And most of the manufacturing has left. So the world is flat was more a term used around how connected the world became. And so I like to talk about how the world got much smaller because when one factory shut down, the American economy reacted very quickly to try to find new suppliers and manufacturers in in other areas that were less affected. And then as China came back online, you know, those factories reopened very quickly. And what I started to see was certainly as a consumer and then also talking to my customer base, I found out that people were selling products that were still on the manufacturing line overseas. And what does that do is is it changes the customer expectation because you've got to have 100% knowledge and understanding of the position of that product so that you can keep your customer commitments. So the ocean freight visibility space is one that I've been studying very closely over the last couple of years as the macro points and the Project 44s and the Forkites started to kind of like dominate trucking visibility and trucker tools. And, you know, these products that are really at the heart of eliminating check calls because we 
we understand the positioning of the truck through the triangulation of the cell phone and the ELD. And, you know, we've got more technology inside of the truck now than ever before. And I've been thinking like, well, when is that going to catch up? on the maritime space because there's been container tracking devices and, you know, like really poor data products that have been sort of available via EDI for a number of years. But I mean, the world is all about APIs right now and people want right. everything in real time. So I'm actually working on, I'm excited to talk to you, you know, maybe down the road about a longer form piece that I'm putting together about ocean freight visibility and data, because there's a lot of information out there. And I don't know that anybody has ever in earnest put all of that information together for people to understand who are the players out there in ocean freight visibility and what are they doing and how are they different from one another? Because there's a lot of vaporware in that space is what I'm finding. And my customers in particular had a lot of questions around, hey, I know that you're a domestic trucking guy, but what should we be thinking about on the visibility around our ocean freight? Right. So what is vaporware for those who haven't been accused of delivering it like I have? Yeah, yeah. I think, uh, I mean, <laughs> there's a delicate balance in building a startup of like selling ahead of your roadmap, you know, but a lot of people will go out and they'll tell you, hey, my product does this and my product does that. And they'll over promise. Right. And then when you really get inside the application, guys like you and I who have been operators, you know, we have like specific detailed questions like how does that work? And the answer can't be like, it's magic, because there's no magic, right? It's all, technology is all, it's math, and it's very uh, linear. So vaporware is the idea of selling a software that's saying it does one thing and it actually not doing that. What you have is a room full of people in the background doing the work and then plugging and chugging the data back into the system. Right. So your 35-page PowerPoint presentation says you can do all this, but (laughs) your system does it. It was interesting. I worked in automotive, and I was doing work at Chrysler, and we were developing some systems. And there was a new vice president. And I remember he brought us all in the office, a few of us <laughs> separately, and said, you know, this group, not you guys, but this group has been accused of vaporware. And we will not have any more of it. And I was like, what? <laughs> he explained what it was. I was like, okay, no more. So talk about who are some of the companies who are part of that international ocean freight data and visibility? So you saw uh, Project 44 really kind of get out ahead of it with an acquisition and I think they're in I don't have the information in front of me, but they have physical offices in a number Everywhere. of countries. And, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then, you know, obviously their nearest competitor, Forkites, who's also done a great job in the trucking space. So really kind of like those two companies have almost rendered MacroPoint like sort of obsolete now, um, at least from my view, because the shippers are all adopting the P44 and the Forkites platform while MacroPoint kind of sold and then has, you know, more or less stopped innovating and so explain that when you say platform, what makes them, what would make Project 44 or Four Kites a different platform than, say, MacroPoint? Well, so I think like terms. Pla- <laughs> yeah, platformization is probably an overused term in our space where, you know, generally a software company has a product that they go to market with. But what separates a product from a platform is interoperability. And if that platform can do more than one thing, or if that product can do more than one thing and connect to other softwares that will make it more valuable in its utility, then oftentimes that product morphs into a platform. So Project 44, I think, is one of the better examples out there. They started off building freight APIs in the LTL space. So companies like Blue Grace and Worldwide Express, who were, you know, selling multiple LTL carriers, didn't have to also have large development shops to manage all of these API connections. And then once the ELDs came out, Project 44 jumped out ahead and started providing that 
truck level visibility. And 10.4 Systems was doing this at the exact same time, founded by Andrew Leto and Jet McCandless at Project 44 was on Andrew Leto's co-founders at Global Trans. So it's not surprising that these freight tech founders from sort of the like LTL online uh, 1.0 era also really got deep into the freight visibility space early because they knew the voice of the customer and the customer knew, hey, I can track my pizza on the Domino's app. Why can't I track my truckload you know, right. of material? And so those platforms, you know, the Project 44 and the four kites of the world had to, you know, based on the, you know, sort of asks of their customer, they've had to look at Ocean and figure out how can we make this visible? How can we keep our customers better informed? Because, you know, one of the things you and I align on, Joe, is that I love to remind shippers of is, hey, like looking at the truck on the map, like, good, cool. But guys like you, when you're running these large supply chains in automotive, you're way too busy for that. And if you have to look at it where a truck is, that means it's already late and you're already pissed off, right? So shippers still care about the same thing. When is it pick up? When is it deliver? How much does it cost? And when one of those things changes, how quickly can you tell me? And I think that's at the core of what these visibility platforms are trying to deliver is that utility of that information they can action on. Right. So uh, getting back to that platform idea, I'm, and I'm, push me back to the shallow end if I need to go, but um, <laughs> I was talking to Jeff D'Angelo from Turbo the other day, and he was talking about, he goes, you know, think of this, you know, and he was describing his company this way, Turbo. It's like LinkedIn or Facebook, where all you have to do is kind of send another invitation and somebody can jump in, and there's all these all these other businesses that can connect through it and other technologies that can align to it. And Facebook's the same way, where this is open platform that allows just Hey, it's already developed. Just jump on board as opposed to the old EDI where they were kind of these pipes where I have to say, Hey, if I'm going to get information from Charlie's system, I got to build a pipe from my system to his system, right? Exactly. And so these platforms that we, I guess we use them, right? That would be LinkedIn. Am I correct to say LinkedIn, Facebook? Those are good examples of platforms. That's absolutely right. And you know, you think about Facebook in its early days, it was like it was a product where Harvard students could get to know one another, right? And then over time, they add all of these other elements that all connect through it and it becomes the platform that you can go access all of your family communication and relationships, all of your friend relationships. You can go buy an old lawnmower on the marketplace. You can put all of your photos in there. And so those various products that Facebook has to offer wouldn't work together cohesively if there wasn't the underlying platform to support it. Right. And WordPress, I think, is a great example of that, too. If you exactly. think about doing a website, you want to use WordPress because WordPress didn't say we have the very best calendar app. No, there's a whole bunch of calendar apps. You just plug them in. They're plugins, right? I love that idea. That's why people love WordPress, because you don't have to worry about, oh, I might have to design my own merchant app. No, I just bring right. Shopify. So, Charlie, tell us about some other companies that you described or talked about in this article. So there's been a few that have kind of come across my desk in the last couple of years that are really innovating and developing some phenomenal tools for shippers, carriers, and, and freight forwarders in the ocean space. The first one that I found out about a couple of years ago is called RPA Labs, and they're leveraging robotic process automation and building out-of-the-box tools to give to freight forwarders to do things like read their emails, send status updates to customers, provide rate quotes in an automated way. In my days of freight forwarding early in my career, when I had the pack and ship store, you know, I'd have a, a crate of 
you know, a machine parts that I want to send to London. And to get an end to end door to door quote would take me three to five days because the office in California has to email the office in the UK. And then you got to get the inland charges and somebody like forgets to do the duties and tax. And, you know, as the shipper, you're left holding the bag with that like slow flow of information. So RPA Labs is helping freight forwarders like really automate a lot of the mundane minutia tasks and spend more of their time working more closely with their customers and their carrier partners. I think another really interesting element of what they're doing. I just had an interview with Alfonso from uh, the guys over at Lean Tech or Lean Staffing sure. Solutions, and we talked about robotic process automation. And, I, and so, if you want a little primer on that, guys, please take a listen to that. But what was interesting to me is they—it's not really a robot; it's bots, right? And yep. so, let's just say you're getting a whole bunch of emails every day saying, "I need, I want a freight quote," and you have customers who like that, right? They—they just want to send you an email. That bot can recognize what's inside that email, read it respond with a buy now, right? says the price Mm -hmm. is this much. And by the way, it'll also add those numbers to your TMS. And there's really, I mean, that's just a real simple example. But when you think about, let's just say you had a a large shop and you got hundreds of people who send you emails every week and you say, let's just say it's 15 minutes a piece. It adds up. And what we would rather do is put people on projects like, hey, make a phone call, build relationships, do the stuff that only people can do. So, Super impressed with what RPA is. And again, you mentioned RPA Labs, and I'll mention my buddies down there at Lean because it it is a cool thing. And and this is, to me, this is the way to compete with the big guys is you start automating and start recognizing that I'm going to need a technology partner who can keep me competitive because the bigger guys that we just, and some of these tech-focused companies, they're bringing it when it comes to technology. They will spend the money on it. They recognize the value. And I think a lot of the small companies, mid-sized companies go, oh my goodness, I'm not going to spend that much on tech. Well, you will if it saves you money. <laughs> well, I think, you know, for the guys at Lean, it was like a brilliant, you know, complimentary product, right? Their nearshoring operation is what really put them on the map. So they're uniquely suited to develop like the custom solutions that right. address their customers' needs because their customers are actually, you know, leveraging the Lean employees. So they know, you know, the pain points involved. And I actually became aware of robotic process automation, you know, many, many years ago. But as it relates to logistics, I got introduced to the team at RPA Labs because I was looking to do one simple thing. We had customers that would send us load tenders eight to 10 a day. And then I'd have a human being print that thing off, look at it, type it into the TMS system. And I thought that's silly. Like there's got to be a technology for that. So I went looking for it. I got introduced to the team at RPA and Matt Motzik, the founder there is hyper talented. He's built a, like a world-class team that's all spread out around the U S and the world. But he really learned about these problems when he was the founder of Catapult, which is one of the like most widely used freight forwarding TMS businesses out there. So another guy that just, you know, he gets it and he's been at the front lines and heard the voice of the customer. Customer, and that's really what gave him the solution. Right. And by the way, those, the, I know this just from my interview with Alfonso, those robotic process automation bots, whatever they call it, I'm, I'm sure I'm misstating this, they are not expensive. It's like five, 10 no. grand to get that installed. And I mean, the, the I think uh, Alfonso said some of the our payback is like a month. So like, it's a no brainer. So well, we have our most our most highly paid employees at Manning's, you know, plugging in data into the system. And I thought like, this is insane. So yeah, RPA Labs, you guys can check them out. Super interesting product that's out there really doing a lot of uh, similar work to what Lean is doing, but without that human element in there and really very customizable. Another company that I came across that as a shipping nerd, like really, really interested me is Vision. And Vision is aggregating APIs for all of the ocean freight carriers. 
So one of the thing that plagues retailers and freight forwarders is the swivel chair of going to, you know, I've got this uh, CMA container coming in, I've got this Costco container coming in, and I've got to go enter in details into their sites to get a, a tracking update and have an estimated time of arrival. And so what Vision is doing is they're saying, hey, we'll do what Project 44 did for LTL APIs many years ago, or what uh, Easy Post has done for the parcel space to democratize parcel shipping through a unified API and, and make it easier for e-commerce sellers to just get the product from A to B. Because I think at the end of the day, just similar to how shippers don't want to track anything on a screen if they don't have to, carrier loyalty is very, very low. You know, like you don't see a lot of people that are just emphatic about one brand of a transportation provider over another. And so serving up that data in a singular connection allows the e-commerce seller of the future or the freight forwarder of the future to just plug in one API and have all of the updates across all of the steamship lines globally come into their system. So that API is really a self-service. You can build it to use it for anything that you want an ocean event or update for. And we've seen some really interesting sort of like merging of the e-commerce platforms, the Shopify's of the world and the supply chain businesses, right? So Shopify is now a 3PL and they're in that space and everybody's looking at Amazon, which we talked about last time on your show. And they're thinking, hey, if a technology business can also be a logistics business, why can't an e-commerce company control their own fate? by managing more of the logistics themselves instead of being beholden to the status updates of the freight forwarder who, again, is doing all of that swivel chairing. Right. So that's Vision. And you said they're creating these APIs for international ocean freight, just like Project 44 did for domestic LTL. LTL. So That's right. And there's one more I want to talk well, I want to, about. Um, I want to get a little okay. more basic than that. So, so okay. I should say simple. So when I, when I think about an API, I think an API, like APIs would allow me to open up Facebook on my tablet, my laptop, and my phone, right? It connects. Mm-hmm. It's kind of always open, right? It's always open. This is, so there's a piece of Facebook on my phone that is connected to Facebook on my laptop, correct? Is that the way? Yeah, but I would think about it a little bit differently. Uh-huh. What the API does is it allows your Facebook to post on your Instagram. It allows right. multiple platforms to connect with one another. Right, right. And I think one of the ways we described it in another podcast was you think about a waitress coming out, getting your order at a restaurant and you give your order back. That's EDI. So it's the waitress is, is bringing the information from the table to the, yeah. to the, to so the kitchen. One shot to order that, right? Right, right. So it's one way, right? And then the, then the, the food's the other way. API is more like I'm sitting at the counter and the guy's cooking it right there and it's always open, right? It's a conversation we're having. And I don't know if that's a great way to look at it, but it's always open, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, I agree with that. And it allows bi-directional flow of information. And, you know, once an API is connected and configured, you do have to do a certain amount of wiring there to teach platform A that name means this in platform B. And so once you make those connections, then the data can sync. Right. But the the advantage of APIs is, so let's just say Project 44 is created and, and, and what Vision's created, they've got an API that can connect players very quickly, almost instant, mm-hmm. instantaneously, as opposed to the old way, which was we will build pipes between these two organizations and, and use EDI. Am I correct to say that? That's exactly right. And then the EDI had to be triggered by an event. So there was like a whole other script. Batched, that right? Yes. At the end of yes, the day, you get all those orders, right? I remember That's that. That's right. Automotive still uses a lot of those. So I'm used to those. So mm-hmm. you talked about vision. You talked about RPA. What else? 
So Open Track is another really interesting company that I came across, founded by a couple of my old mates from Cargomatic. But they saw, you know, uh, in that business at Cargomatic how labor-intensive the logistics and supply chain world is. And they set out to build a suite of APIs that also have executional focus for the freight forwarder. So as an example, one of the things that can really catch a freight forwarder off guard is when a container gets rolled. And when it was supposed to pick up on a certain day and hit a, a sailing, but if, if it misses that sailing because the sailing's oversubscribed, it doesn't sail for a number of days. And meanwhile, you know, in the old days, the freight forwarder just assumed it was on that sailing until it was supposed to be about halfway there. Then they would kind of go track it. And when you say rolled, you mean pushed, pushed to the next ship? Yeah, they call it rolled in maritime. And so if your container gets pushed to the next sailing, then, or it has to go on a different route because of, oversubscription, then uh, getting that update requires a manual sort of workflow. And so OpenTrack has a number of blue chip freight forwarding customers who are sending data through the API in bulk. I mean, we're talking hundreds of thousands of containers on a monthly basis. And OpenTrack is just continuously watching and monitoring those things. And when the container gets uh, the ETA gets changed or the container's route gets changed or any of those details change, the API is going directly into the TMS of the forwarder and making those updates for them. That is, I tell you, I remember back in the day getting stuff from overseas, mostly Asia. And what we used to say it was like Christmas Day when they would deliver this containers. But it's a bad Christmas Day because there's this huge containers and nothing's packed the way you think it should be packed. And you go, oh, here's here's my parts. Well, here's part of my parts, right? Right. <laughs> and then you would find out what actually didn't get loaded. So I guess the role wasn't communicated very well back then. You'd find out kind of well after the fact. No, and I think with the cycle times of every you know seller need to reduce to compete with Amazon. So I look at the ocean container as the warehouse of the future because it used to be that products would come in and sit in a warehouse until somebody bought them. But now they're getting made when somebody buys them. And then they're going to be transported across the ocean. They're moving faster than they ever have. So keeping that customer informed keeps the sellers out of hot water with their most valuable resource. Right. right. You know, and, and this is a whole nother topic, but you know, we had our, we used to do a lot of manufacturing here, mostly in the Northeast, North and the Midwest. And then it all moved down South because it was cheaper. And then it moved to China because it was even cheaper. That was all labor arbitrage. While we're seeing less manufacturing jobs, so is China. And what's happening is automation. And so it won't be too long before ocean will have to compete with my automation can live in China or it can live in Utah. It doesn't really care where it lives. So we're going to have to, if you're going to move stuff over the ocean, you better be very efficient because you're not just going to be competing with other stuff moving on the ocean. You're going to compete with automation here. And let's face it, there is an advantage to saying, I don't have to be a month on the ocean. 100%. There is an advantage, but you know, the one thing that we'll never be able to do is create raw materials wherever we want to, right? Those, so I, I think, uh, <laughs> yeah, so I think raw materials, you know, and components are certainly a category that's going to remain relevant. And then another fast growing space in maritime is bulk, you know, bulk transportation of raw goods. I'm seeing customers all over across a lot of industries look for ways to deliver products in bulk you know, right. to more local distribution points. Right. And those for, for those uh, listening, a lot of stuff that we talk about is moves in a container. We all know those big boxes. Um, when you say bulk, that's like coal or corn or grain, right? Grain. Yeah, exactly. Like and commodities. So, so it just moves, it just is, so they just push, put it, I guess I've never seen it done, but I guess it must, a truck just must pull up and dump it into the hull of the ship, right? 
Well, yeah, you know, they'll, there'll be these, uh, big silos where the oh, yeah. truck rolls in underneath and then you just dump the product directly into like a bulk transport truck, like a, whether it's an end dump or a side hop or a walking floor trailer. And I knew nothing about bulk until I got out here to Manning's and I got really deep in the agri-science space and realized that, wow, if they can service their customers shipping corn seed, as an example, if they don't have to process that, prepare it, package it, palletize it, load it onto a truck, number one, they can get the product there much more cost effectively and efficiently. But number two, it's it, the impact on the environment is substantial, right? I mean, it's less waste ending up in the landfill. Yep. Excellent. So one other area that you talked a lot about in your article, and again, that article and what we're talking about today is an article that Charlie wrote called Top Trends in Supply Chain Technology for 2021. I will put a link to that in the show notes. But you talked a lot about freight fintech. Tell us yes. what that is. <laughs> so, you know, fintech has been, you know, one of the hottest spaces in uh, venture capital investment, late stage private equity investment, public markets. Um, there's an appetite it's for finance tech, right? <laughs> correct. Yeah, there's an appetite for technology around automating the finance world. So I think you and I spoke, maybe it was on a, one of our just many phone calls or maybe on the last show that, you know, to buy a stock, you used to have to go to a stockbroker. And right. like, there was this <laughs> latency in between, you know, when you when you got the appetite for the stock and when you actually got to acquire it, and, you know, Know, pennies can add up on large transactions. And uh, so, you know, uh, Robinhood, who's been in hot water lately, and I'm proud to say that I've pulled all of my money out of Robinhood and I'm going to back to TD Ameritrade and Coinbase. But Robinhood has been one of the hottest fintech startups in the last 10 years because they democratized uh, investing for standard day traders. Normal guys like you and I can go in there and we can buy stocks at an extremely low price because they're leveraging technology and automation to serve all of this. What we didn't know is that they were also behind the scenes selling our data to the large hedge funds and short sellers. I saw that years ago, a year ago, maybe. It was an article in Forbes, and it said the way Robinhood makes money is they sell your data. Now, I, you could look and say, what do I care? They sell my data so somebody else can trade faster. Well, I talked to my son-in-law about that, and he says, I don't like Robinhood because it doesn't trade fast enough. And uh, he said he was trading stuff that was fast at moving. So was yeah. it, if you buy and hold, who cares? But if it's you're trading. Uh, if you're day trading, up, absolutely. If you're playing around, you're playing money, you're gambling money, maybe uh, you care more. Yeah, and uh, so like kind of, you know, to, to wrap this back into the freight fintech, you know, we've seen logistics has kind of been slow to the party when it comes to investment. And then over the last three to five years, the world would have you believe that there's been more money poured into early stage logistics tech companies than any other space. But that's just not true. I mean, it pales in comparison to software, it pales in comparison to financial technology, but we're getting there. And I think one of the last, you know, final frontiers in the logistics tech landscape to be solved and to ripe for opportunity is the finance side of the business. So one of the companies that um, I've become familiar with uh, over the last nine or 10 months is Open Envoy. I've been super excited about that business. It's founded by Matt Tillman, who was the founder of Haven. Haven was an ocean freight TMS that was sold to Kraft Foods. And uh, Matt's new venture is now automating the freight bill auditing space. Uh, One thing I didn't know is that 75% of transportation invoices are paid without being verified. And when you look at variances, which I've I've used, you know, freight auditing companies over the years when I had large spend in different businesses, you know, it's worth having somebody, you know, right. 
specialized to go in there and take a look. And you can always, <laughs> the one thing those companies are good at is, is covering their burden. So whatever you're paying them, they will show you on paper how you made more money back in audits and credits right. than you spent with them. So those auditing companies, you know, that exist in the space today, they're largely family owned. They're largely uh, low tech, multi-generational businesses that have reached a certain size and sophistication. And they're mostly nearshored and uh, huge, huge manual sort of uh, headcount of workers there. And so Open Envoy was built to read the invoice, verify the actual charge versus the quoted charge, and then flag any disputes so that a human could come in and intervene. And then it allows the free flow of the payment out to the vendor if there's not uh, any variances. So just anyone who's not already caught up on this is when we talk about freight bill auditing, what we're talking about is the difference between what you were quoted and invoiced. And by the way, that is an enormous pet peeve of mine. It's understandable if there's detention or an unplanned accessorial. We all understand that I should have you pay extra. It drives me crazy though. And LTL was used to be kind of notorious for this where you get quoted $1,800 and then it comes back $2,100. And you, if you're the 3PL, you've got to go back and explain. And I really just think it, we have to get rid of that. We have to get rid of that. But what I would always say to shippers when I was selling 3PL services, because we did our own auditing, is that there's one of three things that's happening with your freight bills. You're not auditing. <laughs> you're not auditing. You're overpaying. Or, that's right. Or you're paying someone to audit it for you, and they're keeping half of the savings that you should have. Or you can have us do it as part of our service. <laughs> and it's funny how many companies just don't bother. They just go, oh, it's just, you know, that's right. You know, you so that's it, right. it's the black hole down the hall that I just pay, throw money into. Yeah. So, and I, I noticed when I, I got here to Manning's, we had this person that was working in the business and my standard rule is like, I'm just going to keep my mouth shut for three to six months, learn what everybody does, build some trust before I start <laughs> barking orders. And this woman was just constantly carrying around this box of paper and the mail would come in and she'd take the box of paper over there and then she'd be doing stuff. And then I'd see her at the scanner all the time and the printer all the time. And so finally it was her turn to kind of like for me to kind of dig into what she's doing. It's like, what is this box of paper? Well, when an invoice comes in, it comes in a paper and then a couple times a week I scan them all in and I send them into my email so that I have them, you know, in my email. And then when uh, the rest of the file comes in, I'll take the paper file that we were making at the time and I'll verify it against the bill. And if everything matches up, then I will take the bill, I'll approve it and I'll scan it and email it to the office manager so she can pay it. I was like, so, so, Let's walk this back. So you're scanning something to email it to yourself to put it into a queue so you know it's there. And then once <laughs> once you verify this and you check it against something else, we're then paying you to also scan it again and email it to the office manager so she can print it off and plug it into the system and pay it. Like, yeah, I was like, if this isn't the most brother-in-law agreement I've ever seen between two people to kind of keep themselves employed, I don't know what is. And so... We actually uh, brought in the guys from Hubtran, which is a sort of invoice automation platform specifically for truckload. And I remember the look on those people's face when they looked at the platform. (laughs) They were like, man, this is cool. And then about halfway through the meeting, she turned and said, well, what am I going to do? <laughs> you know, we, we'll find something for you. You know, and, and ultimately, we were able to kind of eliminate those positions and and repurpose that's, the budget dollars that, to that, sales. But you know, that when you really think about, it, that's not the kind of work you want a human doing anyway. And no. you know, machines what, are better, right? And this is a little off topic, but I'll, I'll bring this up anyway. One of my big pet peeves in trucking is when a truck driver delivers the stuff and you get this 
you know, sometimes there's that delayed of uh, proof of delivery. And then one of the things I really don't like is when you were quoted, you know, $1,800 and then it's a bill comes and then another bill comes. And I always think, well, wait a sec. On the day it was delivered, you knew there was detention. Why yeah. did it? Why is there like a three week or a three month delay on it? I just, I find that intolerable. I can't stand it. Or I used to say to my tr- the tr- brokers that I work, trucking companies I work with, why don't you bill me the day that it delivered? I don't understand why it, I get a bill like months later when the, when we can't discuss what happened. Well, and let's be honest, like you knew the whole time the truck was on the road that you were going to have to send me an invoice at the end. Why was that invoice not in a queue in your system? So the truck driver calls in and, you know, scans and sends back in this document, which is still crazy to me that people are dropping off documents or going inside and using a trans flow facts at a truck stop. So they're going back to the contactless operations, you know, part of the COVID revolution, you know, we did see a huge advancement in digitization and, and truckers, you know, that had flip flops finally had to go out and get a smartphone because nobody was letting them come in and use a fax machine right. or, and right. or sign a bill of lading right. anymore. So, you know, but on the fintech side of it, really those documents that we're talking about are at the core of that entire transaction. And so the speed in which you can get those documents back is improving all the time and it's unlocking and enabling these arms and legs businesses like freight bill audit, freight factoring. It's making these businesses, there's potential there to make these businesses more valuable through automation. Now, whether or not the, you know, sort of old guard freight factors or the old guard, you know, billing audit companies are going to employ this technology, I'm not sure. Maybe guys like me have to go buy those companies and then automate them and then retrade the businesses, but we'll see. Damn, do you have to buy everything in this business? <laughs> no, 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 I don't really have any money and I'm trying to get wealthy someday. So by hook or by crook, I'm going to get there. But um, I'm really excited about like to round out the freight fintech thing. You know, I've been staring at this space for a number of years. And in matter of fact, like payments or freight fintech has been in each of the last three prediction articles that I've written for 19, 20 and 21. And it's really because the speed in which we can do these things is improving. So I think there's massive opportunities to be built, you know, in the freight bill auditing space, the freight factoring space, and then another space I'm particularly interested in right now is fuel cards like the fuel card system that the uh, truck drivers are using right now is just fundamentally broken and lumper fees and the way that truck drivers have to spend cash when they get to dcs is just mind-numbing to me so really excited about that space and paying a lot of attention to who's going to be disruptive there so the fintech companies you mentioned was open envoy basic block and pay cargo give me one bullet point on each one of those guys so Basic Block is a tech-enabled factor company here uh, based in Lincoln, Nebraska. And I met this entrepreneur two years ago when he was in his mom's basement with an idea. And really the thing that he said to me that solidified he's going to be a, a major player in this space is he knew that if he could get those documents in a digital form and get them back into the back office software as quickly as possible, then the driver could get paid faster. And if you can pay the driver faster, you can ultimately end up making money in other areas on that driver relationship. And so the goal of Basic Block is to take take freight factoring rates down to zero and pay drivers same day and then make money off of ancillary services and the other stakeholders in the process. I think if you look over at Convoy, they will pay you within 48 hours, I think. Which is still too slow. Yeah, still well, too slow. I think it's yeah, it's still too slow. But they're not no factor fees. Just they're just that's as long as you download their information and use their process on your phone. And I think that's going to be the bar. That is the bar it everyone's going to have to reach. 
And now, you know, I think the convoys of the world, we're going to have a whole different conversation around like, what does the exit model look like for those guys? Because one of the reasons why I've kind of backed away of working in these tech enabled startups is you can't go sell the business for the amount that the venture capitalists need you to sell it for so they can make their venture returns. And when you look at a convoy, CH Robinson wouldn't pay anywhere near what convoy is valued by the VCs. CH Robinson wouldn't pay that much to acquire them. So how they're going to ultimately realize that liquidity, whether it's uh, probably through going public through a SPAC or something like that or maybe merging with some other you know, digital freight brokers and it's a buy and hold scenario. But I think the exits will start to get complicated with those multiples. But when you're sitting on a war chest of money like Dan is right now, eating the factor fees of one or 2%, I mean, that's a rounding error in his budget. So that's not a problem. And then going back to the pay cargo folks, I became aware of this business like a few years ago when I was in, in the airspace world and they were putting kiosks in to allow couriers and delivery drivers to verify that they got their product delivered at, you know, major CFS stations and DCs. And they've really started to innovate now in terms of how they're getting fleets paid and drivers paid faster by using the digital footprint and the digital breadcrumb trail to verify these transactions. Very nice. Very nice. Charlie, this is a great article. And guys, it's it's like eight or nine pages and it's rich. So I'll put a link to my, in the show notes, to this article. It's again on Medium. And uh, Charlie, thank you so much. Before you go though, give us some final thoughts on this. Well, I think the final thoughts is um, we should all be proud and excited about what we accomplished in 2020 as an industry. The world like really kicked us in the ass and none of us stayed home and did nothing about it. We kept moving, we kept innovating, and we approached this time with an open mind. And I think that, you know, it's been a joy of mine to spend some time in December to bring these thoughts out into the world. And this article, you know, that I write annually more so than any other, you know, contributions I make to this space, which I don't get paid for really anything that I do as far as promoting these things. But this puts me in touch with more interesting people, I think, than any other piece. And it gets people thinking, whether they're sort of an old guard player or they're, you know, a new entrant, it gets them thinking about opportunities for innovation. And, you know, one thing that you and I share a passion for is we love to talk to these startup people because, you know, they're half our age and twice as smart. And so um, I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep, you know, kind of writing and running my mouth as long as there's problems to be solved. Right. And uh, the guys, have, Charlie, I'll say it for you. Charlie is always interested in hearing from startups, hearing from people who are kind of trying to transform the space. So I'm always happy to introduce them because he does give great advice to people. He's, as you can tell from listening, he has uh, done quite a few things in this business. And again, it's there's a lot of people, myself included, who have backgrounds that are useful, but they're not real useful when it comes to understanding investments in the space or understanding all the technical aspects. He's got at all. So if you're a startup, if you're thinking about starting a new business, he's the guy to talk to. Thank you, Joe. I appreciate that, sir. Yep. So thanks so much, Charlie. I know uh, I'd like to do this again soon. There's always something good on your mind that I'd love to have on my podcast. Yeah, looking forward to it. So I'll be putting out in the next couple of weeks a long-form essay about the ocean freight visibility space. Maybe we can unpack that Ooh, someday. Now. I, would, I would like that. Thank you. Thank you. And thank all of you for listening to my podcast. Your continued support is very much appreciated. Until next time, I'd warn upward. You've been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage in conversations with experts in the logistics field. If you're an expert and would like to be featured on the Logistics of Logistics podcast, please email Joe Lynch at joe at the logisticsoflogistics.com. 